Hello and welcome to the Drug Policy Voices podcast. This is an ESRC-funded research project which aims to engage people who use drugs into debates about drug policy. Each month we'll speak about the findings of our research, discuss the hot topics connected to drug use and drug policy, and talk about the ways in which you can participate in our research. Our vision is to educate, inform and amplify your voices. To find out more information about us, including research ethics, privacy statements, and where to go for advice and support, you can visit our website at www.drugpolicyvoices.co.uk. Hello listeners, welcome to episode 9, which is about drugs education, harm reduction and safer use. We spoke to Arda and Ivan of Neurosight and Drugs and Me. Drugs education, in particular improving the quality of drugs education, is a key emerging finding from our research. This episode comes at a particularly pertinent time when drug-related deaths are at an all-time high and there have been many issues with adulterated substances over the summer. Release issued a warning about adulterated heroin in southern England and The Loop, who've been testing substances at festivals over the summer, have issued warnings about pills being sold as ecstasy actually containing different substances. Please do follow them on social media for advice and guidance as well as these early warnings that can help save lives. If you're interested in knowing more about different substances and how they affect the body and brain, please do follow Drugs and Me and the series of excellent podcast episodes by Drug Science. This is a great way to improve your knowledge and understanding about different substances. Now, on to the episode. So, hello, listeners. Welcome to episode nine, uh, where we're going to be talking about drugs education. So today I have with me Ivan and Arda. They're both co-founders of Neurosight. Ivan is also co-founder of Drugs and Me as well. And they're interested uh, broadly in education, harm reduction and safer use. And they'll tell you a lot more about their interests and backgrounds as we go along. So welcome, Ivan and Arda. Hey, Rebecca. <laughs> Great stuff. OK, so can you tell our listeners a bit about your, you know, yourselves, neuroscience, Drugs and Me um, and your roles within that as, as well? Ivan, let's talk to you first. Hey, okay, well, I, I want to say before I, I introduce like myself, like, but I've been following the podcast since I saw it on Instagram. So it's like, I'm quite happy that you, you reach out and that we're here talking today. We started Drugs Me. I started Drugs Me in the summer between my first and second year as an undergrad. Uh, so I was studying neuroscience at University College London. Mm-hmm. And it was actually a reaction to the lack of drug education uh, and also uh, a bad trip. And other, and also seeing my my friends having like bad experiences with their recreational drug use, uh, and actually Arda and I were studied the same degree. Like she, uh, Arda was in the year below, and she joined Drugs for Me uh, at the very beginning. And right now, Drugs for Me, what, uh, what we've been just, it's been like a hobby uh, side project for six, seven years now since I came to London. And now, what we are focusing on is we want to empower people to enjoy the highs and minimize the lows of recreational drug use. So we put together content and we're building software to help them make safer and smarter decisions when using drugs recreationally. I guess in terms of my background, I mean, Ivan gave an idea. Um, So I did neuroscience at UCL with him. um, And then 
when I was learning about neuroscience and psychopharmacology and again just like him seeing how my friends were using these drugs and how the whole situation was dealt with in the society I get really frustrated so I got into um, drug policy which led me to do um, science policy at UCL as my master's um, and then yeah during my time at drugs and me um we started um, another branch of it called neuroscience um you know as a reaction to the conversations we had with other organizations we realized that there was a need for organizations to really understand and adopt harm reduction practices to keep people safe um, so um, we started neuroscience and right now i'm leading that one and ivan is helping me um, and what we do there is um, we combine policy, education and research to help organisations um, design and deliver harm reduction, basically. Amazing. It's so good to hear that, you know, again, this started from you studying together, you know, a reaction to things that were going around uh, with you, with your friends and things, and then, you know, what you were studying. So first of all, and I think, you know, I wanted to ask this question um, because within our um, within our kind of research, we've looked at kind of drugs education um, and really people's opinions on drugs education as well. And with the people that I've interviewed so far, especially young people, they are very, very keen to talk about their drugs education or lack of. So I wanted to ask you, what was your drugs education like at school and university? So I attended my sixth form in Wales and obviously University in London. And both times, although drug use, including alcohol, was around, I don't really remember receiving a drugs education that was actually practical and focused on keeping us safe. Um, it was more about the rules and the law about it, what we could do, what we couldn't do, to focus on what we couldn't. Yeah, th these are the rules. This is what you shouldn't be doing. No kind of advice or guidance or information on harm reduction or anything like that. I, I don't think I even had that. No, not even talking about the rules. Like, so I did my high school in Spain, uh, both in, in Canary Islands and Madrid. And yeah, we, we had nothing about it. Nothing about... Uh, we had some sex education workshops, uh, which were open and, and I think honest, like the right sex education that you would expect um, in the 21st century. But um, yeah, we had nothing at high school. And then I did a year of uh, um, like undergrad uh, psychology in, in Spain. And yeah, like cannabis was like, even we were the campus, I did psychology and the campus is uh, outside the main campus because it's psychology, politics. And yeah, it's funny because that campus is outside because the dictator wanted to have that specific student population outside because they were a bit reactionary and like people smoke weed in the corridors and stuff in, in that campus and and we also had nothing about it although everyone was smoking weed there and then yeah I came here and as I said like one of the reasons why I started I got involved and started drugs to me was because there was no drug vacation at all. So when I was at school, uh, Leah Betts died. And so we had, you know, we were all taken into the school hall and we were shown a video about Leah Betts, which was, you know, I, I must have been about 15 at the time. We, you know, which was real shock tactics. And for me, it was just like, how could anybody take ecstasy? You know, you would be a fool to do this. 
and then you know as you kind of go to university and you know see the kind of experiences other people having around which are very different from what you've been taught you know it's it's a kind of it's you start to mistrust what you've you know what you've been taught and I think that that's a a disconnect between young people and you know the kind of education system the government but what shocked me as well is that when I've done some interviews that you know young people are still receiving Leah Betts as that kind of story of one pill can kill you know mm. a good 20 30 years later and I guess we're we're, try, we're working on this as well is that we I think widespread there is no change there hasn't been like a lot of change and there doesn't seem to be a like widespread will to change but there, there's change in very limited ways in very specific regions or communities. And there's, yeah. this is because of uh, small organizations or passionate individuals, I guess, like small organizations like us or yeah, passionate individuals like us as well. Um, but also within organizations that are very bureaucratic, big and uh, old, you say old fashioned, there are also passionate individuals there that they advocate and kind of like champion implementation of harm reduction on these chats so mm -hmm. i think i think that that's encouraging but uh, we're still missing like a widespread mainstream um like wave i think yeah so yeah exactly you know there's those pockets there there's people that are trying to make change however more broadly there you know it's very difficult to kind of get that change um more nationally i guess and I guess the other thing to say is as well is that we've not only spoken to young people, but we've also spoken to a lot of parents as well as part of the research. And, you know, I think there's often this kind of idea that parents um, are not going to be willing to, uh, you know, kind of talk about drugs in any other way than a just say no approach. But from our research, especially those parents who have had experiences themselves, they you know they want protection of their children and one of those things where a lot of parents are saying i would want them to come and talk to me about their drug use and alcohol use you know including alcohol as you say talk about it and if you're you know considering using any substance then kind of talk it through with parents as you say there's those individuals and pockets but more broadly so what do you think then are the key components of good drugs education I mean, I'd say you need a bit of both, don't you? So you want a little bit of prevention, but you also want to make sure that, and you know, by understanding that that will not prevent people taking drugs, then you want to make sure the people who choose to take drugs then stay safe. So you need to complement it with a more harm reduction approach-based education. And, you know, once you, um, you know, talk about all these deterrent contexts around drugs, such as the laws, the rules, then you need to kind of make the next step and talk about what all these psychoactive drugs are, um, you know, what types of drugs exist, how these different types of drugs affect our brain, our body, and in relation to that, how you can actually stay safe and you know all this should be delivered in a practical and evidence-based and an honest way because i don't know in terms of like it, the framing of drugs i feel like it should be framed as just any risky behavior that we should think about you know in addition to sex driving extreme sports because yeah otherwise there is no way of breaking the stigma around it it's just another behavior we have that we make decisions about 
and alcohol included in that i guess as well like you know kind of yeah. seeing alcohol as a drug as, as a substance that it has risks associated with it as well yeah i mean ideally i'd say you should include alcohol but any psychoactive drugs you know we should also be talking about the sleeping pills that sold um in the pharmacy um you know any drug that has an effect in our mind and nervous system so that you have a more broad understanding of how these drugs might interact once you consume them you know maybe you're you're on a prescription pill and you want to drink alcohol it's again it's harm reduction it's a way of staying safe it's like you know how in school everyone learns a bit of philosophy a bit of psychology i feel like everyone should learn a bit of uh, pharmacology with yeah. it <laughs> yeah and interesting to come from your kind of pharmacology backgrounds as as well i think um how how drugs interact with the body and the brain is is something that people want knowledge about i think as well and i think one of the one of the recent things you know thinking more broadly caffeine and young people as well so um with the kind of caffeinated drinks and things i think that the laws may have changed around that um in recent years but you know it's things that young people can access kind of freely and on the shelf as well Ivan have you got anything to add to that about good drugs education Yeah so I want to pick up on the what you've uh, Ardas just said now about uh talking about pharmacology neuroscience in school I will actually one, one of the projects that we were working on uh before the pandemic hit uh it's uh, one of our clients that is on the other side of of the earth and we were trying to implement drug education in the curriculum but not as a new subject or as like pharmacology neuroscience but actually uh, you can talk about any subject um you can you can talk about drugs in any subject you can talk about drugs in chemistry uh in literature in history and biology so i think by uh taking this very um i guess academic approach uh and talk, like you can talk about sex and all these like risky behaviors that or stigmatized behaviors you, you if you take this very like sciency academic approach and just try to show children uh that all these behaviors they've, they've been in society for a while and we can understand them without any political agenda or without any moral judgment i think uh, for me a multidisciplinary uh approach in without any political or like even you don't need to talk about policy not like i mean you can talk about politics uh, as uh, from an academic point of view as well so i think for me this would be and obviously we couldn't deploy that project execute it because of covid but it's still there and and it's a, it's a small i guess experiment we would like to then do that in other schools around the world i think uh yeah uh, that will be that's one of i guess my visions uh uh in like neuroside and the consultancy work that we do with schools one of the things that we're also talking about within the research is who is best to deliver drugs education is it the responsibility of parents teachers is this best delivered by specialist services you know obviously you are trying to work with people to better education and sometimes you know one of the things about drugs education that often gets criticized is that sometimes you know teachers don't have the training they don't have the understanding uh, they don't have the time to do it to kind of deliver this information so who do you think's best place to to deliver this information so i think in in an ideal world or i guess the, the my vision in terms of like drug education is that 
the behaviors that are encouraged by what we've defined in the previous question as good drug education, they should be ingrained in our cultural practices. So they should actually be memes that we already have. And, and we already have some of them. Like so Many of them are protective. Sometimes they're not protective. What, what I argue with this, but with the meme story, is that because of the stigma and the laws, we don't have all, all these like memes for recreational drug use or illegal substances. They're kind of like under the hood and they're not exposed to mutate in the adaptive, most adaptive ways. They, the mechanisms of learning is maladaptive. So mm. I think one of the things we're trying to do at a high level, what I see drugs in me with the software that we're developing on Neuroside with the consultants we work with organizations, is that we're trying to fill these cultural gaps and be proactive about developing them. So I would say, ideally, that no one should be actually doing the drug education. It should be part of, of our cultural practices. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. Arda, um, what about you? I mean, Ivan said it really well, but I guess to like explicitly answer your question, I'd say, you know, all, all these um, groups, parents, teachers or external services, I think they all contribute. And I'd say especially parents can never be outside the equation. You know, they'll always greatly influence young people's beliefs and attitudes around drugs. So it's really important that they are informed and always try to have an honest and ongoing conversation with their kids. But I'd say in terms of like actively delivering the education, I'd say currently I'd vote for the specialised external services because as you already mentioned, it's not uncommon that young people don't see their schools or unis as credible sources on drugs because they're so used to hearing just say no types of approach to their education. So I think they just like block out any input, even if it is or it might be helpful and beneficial, they just, nah, I don't care, I don't believe them. But maybe down the line, I think teachers, when there is a more established and evidence-based drug education curriculum, and obviously if they are receiving enough resources and funding to deliver it well, then of course teachers should also be contributing to this whole education. And um, Yeah, I think um, it is really important. So who kind of gives you that information of who's telling you or informing you um, can often either resonate or, or not. You know, like I often talk about this in terms of political leaders, you know, often if you don't like that political leader, it doesn't matter what they say, you, you know, like you can't agree with it. Um, but also, you know, so I think who delivers that information is really important. And mm -hmm. I do think specialised services as well, that seems to be something that kind of comes up quite a lot within, within the research, but not to forget kind of our peer-to-peer because often we, we, you know, we learn from our friends, you know, a lot of what we've all talked about and what's been talked about in the podcast is that, you know, we're learning from people around us. So, um, and people give us advice and information. So yeah, to have it kind of all, all out there and, um, and it's really, really good. Okay. So let's go on to some terms then. So what does the term harm reduction mean to you? As a broad definition in my mind, I'd say generally reducing the negative consequences of a behavior because, you know, a lot of things that feel good in life also have some sort of potential negative consequences. Again, like sex, extreme sports, or even chocolate. Um, so in terms of drugs, I'd say it's about being um, realistic and pragmatic about individuals' drug behavior. 
So accepting that some individuals will choose to take drugs. So uh, then you ask the next question of if there is not much more I can do to prevent this behavior, how else I can keep this individual safe? So yeah, this is harm reduction for drugs in my mind. And what about you, Ivan? What's harm reduction mean to you? Yeah, I guess for me, when I started, so before coming to, to London, I didn't know what ecstasy was like. I had no idea. And I also, I only started drinking um, alcohol when I was like 18, which is like uncommon in Spain. Uh, so for me, when I, start, when I learned about harm reduction, it was a way of um, removing some of my moral burdens uh, that I had and like that I've been taught about risky behaviors such as recreational drug use. And it was a way of acknowledging that people engage in these activities and that instead of saying no, just try to, as artists explained, well, yeah, reduce the, the harms, the potential harms that you get when you engage in these behaviors. Mm. Um, so, so for me, it, it's, it's a bit of a liberating term like that, to use that framework because you can like get rid of these more burdens and burdens and talk about uh, things with I don't know from like high, higher level and from outside but I guess uh, we've been one thing that I wanted to say is that drugs to me we're a bit unhappy with the term harm reduction yeah and and we are trying to actually we're developing so in this app that I've mentioned we are moving we don't want it to be a harm reduction app we want it to be and we're still debating we're not sure about the 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 words uh, so maybe Rebecca, you have a you could like comment on this or any listeners, but we're thinking instead of harm reduction, it should be about uh, pleasure and harm management or benefit and harm management because sometimes um, yeah, drugs um, are can be that people take rec drugs recreationally for like because they're pleasure pleasurable, but sometimes they also do it because they get other benefits apart from the hedonistic. Uh, so, so yeah, I think uh, we are, and usually in like harm reduction and like organizations that do harm reduction need to frame things very carefully and they need to get, uh, they can't use words like tripping or I don't know, all these words sometimes you need to be like quite careful with them and I mm. think um, sometimes it's a bit too much, like you should mm -hmm. use certain um, words that get you close to the people that you want to reach. So yeah, I think, yeah, harm reduction is, is, can be liberating to talk about drugs in that perspective, but it can also be a trap um, for mm. the field, I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, just thinking about the term harm reduction, it's focused on harm, isn't it? You know, yeah. like, I think that's been the, one of the biggest criticisms from academia is that, you know, within that, it's just, it's wholly focused on reducing those harms. And I think having that kind of, we, you know, we know from all of our research and experiences that that pleasure and benefits are the reasons that people take drugs and i think having that kind of benefit maximization as people have started to talk about and kind of harm reduction or harm minimization um you know are useful but terminology around drugs substances is you know we is probably something that we could debate till the end of time and you know for some people you know, the term addiction is offensive for other people. It really helps them understand and describe themselves. But I think, yeah, that I definitely that focus on thinking about benefits and harms is, is a great place to, to start. In terms of what you're focusing on at the moment, what are your key concerns about drug-related behaviour? 
So what things are you kind of focusing on or responding to within your work? I'd say it depends on which population we are talking about. Because, for instance, if it's the people who are dependent or addicted on drugs, then if they are not talking to anybody about it, it's a concern. So, um, you know, if they actually do talk about it, they might end up getting support, either friendly or professional. Um, and that might prevent them going into a negative feedback loop in terms of their mental health. If we are talking about first time or occasional or you know, other types of users, I guess it's not being knowledgeable about what they are doing. That would be the concern. So maybe they believe inaccurate things, um, you know, the things that they hear from their peers, or maybe they don't even consider being informed because they don't understand the importance of having knowledge around drugs. Yeah, um, I guess for more general behaviours, I'd say binging and mixing is what we practically focus on because it has a, such a like quick, you know, uh, immediate effect in terms of reducing the harms. And a lot of drug use can be, poly, as they call poly drug use, that you might be using drugs, you know, drug, different drugs, alcohol at the same time. And I know that the, the kind of thing that often gets focused on is kind of cocaine and alcohol mm. as well. Can you explain what the kind of issues are there when mixing cocaine and alcohol? So when you uh, consume them together, um, they form a compound called cocaethylene. I think that's how you pronounce it. And it's just a lot more toxic to your liver. It's just harder on your heart. It just makes it more toxic in a way that it's more toxic if you consume these substances separately. And it takes uh, it takes much longer. So that half-life, which is like the the time that it takes your body to kick a substance out from like inside it's it's much longer in the survey that uh, we did or nearsight did in december there were like some interesting things mm -hmm. about student drug use and mental health uh, yeah. and i think we've been talking a lot about that um, yeah we try to communicate that a lot to the you know, different stakeholders in the universities because especially during covid we observed quite a shift in why um, young people use drugs um, before COVID. It was mostly, you know, to, to have fun, to go out. It was mostly positive reasons. But um, during COVID, that kind of shifted to more negative reasons. It was more about escaping reality, coping with anxiety, to be able to fall asleep and things like that. And Obviously, when that happens, there is a lot more chance of developing dependence. So, yeah, we are, we are trying to, you know, in our workshops with um, students, we always try to make them uh, reflect on, you know, why they take these drugs, what benefit they are getting, and if they can find an alternative way of replacing this drug behavior, you know, if they are taking it to be able to sleep, for instance. Yeah, so when it kind of moves away from, you know, being about those pleasures and benefits, benefits. and that recreational thing that people are using it for a particular purpose. I guess uh, The Loop is doing now a really good campaign uh, to actually tackle some of that. So because people are coming back to, to partying, uh, so there are certain things like tolerance and because drug use change uh, because there was no nightlife industry. So now things like tolerance is lower. Etc. And I think they're getting a lot of exposure, and like, and that's great that they've partnered with Metro. Uh, so I think, um, yeah, I'm not sure to answer your question about whether it's a, it's going to be 
a long-term shift. I think, mm. Arda, you were saying that um, there is now a focus on uh, more... The, but there are, there's a budget, there are budgets for mental health at universities, mm-hmm. and they're starting to, to use these budgets to work on drug-related topics. So do you think yeah, that... We are trying to convince them to do that, basically. <laughs> Uh, by showing the links between drug use and mental health. Because you would be surprised how people don't see the links between mental health and drug use. You know, they only see the direction of taking drugs causes mental health problems and not vice versa. So, yeah, I think if we can show um, any organisation that actually people a lot of the time use drugs to deal with mental health problems, then they would actually be diverting some of their mental health um, resources to tackle drug-related issues. And I think we can't forget that, uh, you know, a lot of people are using substances for positive mental health. You know, I think about psychedelics, for example. You know, people talk about using mushrooms and um, and LSD, and actually, this has a really positive effect on mental health. It's not just that that drugs are going to take away from your mental health or mm-hmm. vice versa. And what's the link? Actually, you know, people talk about the afterglow of mushrooms. They talk about, you know, ayahuasca use, plant medicine use, which has a really positive benefit on, on their mental health. And rather than this kind of traditional kind of come down that you take drugs, you have the high and then you come down from it. Actually, there's a lot more to it than that. I guess the way Arda and I reply was a bit, you could see it, the bias to the harm. Mm. Uh, we're, we're just talking about harm and benefit, and, and we answered, um, we just focused on the harm there. But yes. I guess, yeah, but I guess with, with COVID, because I, we did this drugs media survey as well, and we saw that uh, four out of 10 people uh, were self medicating with mm. the recreational drug use, or like the recreational drugs that you would say. And I yes. guess there's a bit, I think it's concerning because uh, of the lack of education and knowledge because mm. uh, like me- self-medication shows uh, that there's an unmet medical need, uh, which is fine. Like people should be empowered to, to take their own decisions and like uh, use their own substances to, to like um, feel better. But mm-hmm. if... We don't know, like, even from the academic point of view, we don't know enough to know how to manage, um, like, Mm -hmm. these drugs. So so I think I I have a bias to, when we talk about mental health and and drugs, I have a bias towards harm because of the unknowns. Mm. Uh, But you're, yeah, you're totally right, Rebecca. There's also a benefit there in terms of well-being and mental health. So, you know, think about the pleasures of positives then. So do you think, this is one of our key questions within our research, should we talk about the pleasures of positives of drugs and alcohol use when providing education to young people? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, honesty is really important to have credibility in the eyes of young people, you know, so they actually listen to you. if what you're saying doesn't match their experience, then why would they believe you or take seriously what you say? Mm. So you have to be honest about it. And mm. that includes talking about the benefits and the pleasures. What do you think about drugs education more in the general population? Something that we're trying to do with Drug Policy Voices. You know, do we need to improve our understanding, do you think, in the general population? Uh, I think we, we need to... One thing, uh, one of my research, uh, like, lines is about misconceptions 
uh, but this in like physics, and and I also think about misconceptions in drug education. So yeah. I think actually tackling all these like misconceptions, like literally one is alcohol and coffee are drugs. Mm. Uh, like if I think by tackling these misconceptions in the general population, things will improve in the sense like people will be more open and okay with behaviors that they don't uh, do because sometimes sometimes you're against a particular behavior because you don't understand that behavior and um, so I'm just gonna put an example I'm like I've never prayed and I, I'm not I'm not religious at all and I didn't understand praying and this year I've been working with a student that prays and I'm like and, I, and now I understand like and I just like I live like when he goes and does it I I just like that's your time that's what makes you feel good and I'm not gonna if you ask me I'm gonna protect you to do it because you want to do it and it makes you feel good and it's what you want it's part of your culture and I think it's the opposite is true like sometimes people don't understand drug use because they don't engage and they don't want to and that's fine so in his in his case like he if he doesn't pray he'll feel uncomfortable and he might be like, oh, I've, I've like betrayed or I don't know, cheated or whatever. So he, he will always ask me, oh, I need to go pray. So it's the same for me. It's like sometimes if I don't have my, I don't know, weekend in which I have a session with my friends, mm. I, I miss it and I don't feel happy. So I, I want to have that like once in a while. So it's, uh, I think we need to help people understand behaviors that they don't engage with and tackle the misconceptions around surrounding those uh, behaviors what makes the you know drug policy tricky is is this whole moral debate about it i remember when i was studying i had friends who was interested in the policy around transport for instance or energy and then yeah. in those fields everyone tries to improve it like it's it's you know when you engage people it's kind of easy but with things like sex abortion drugs the morality, you know, the fact that it can be right or wrong makes it really tricky to communicate it. But I think one of the root problems is how we tend to see hedonism as immoral or selfish, and especially how getting pleasure in, you know, quotation mark, easy way by simply consuming a substance. We think that's bad because we think, oh, you didn't achieve that happiness or pleasure after working hard for it. But it's interesting because, unfortunately, this understanding is usually for around illegal drugs, not drugs like alcohol. Um, you know, they, people also enhance their pleasure by drinking alcohol, you know, when they are talking to their friends or watching a film or eating sweets. So I guess we just need to overcome that by showing the similarities between pleasures and, yeah, these substances. And alcohol for sociability as well, to kind of relax yourself into conversations and talk and to bond and, you know, lots, you know, lots and lots of, you know, kind of positive benefits there. And I think often, you know, we're t there's, a, there's layers to this, this kind of health benefits, social benefits, cultural benefits, you know, so many different things, um, you know, components that make this so complex when we're talking about kind of education and understanding. So in what ways do you think that drug policy should be reformed um, more generally kind of what needs to happen to make it better do you think policy making starts with framing the problem right and if you get it wrong then your policy is solving the wrong problem or it's just solving the symptoms of the problem so i think the reform should be about how the problem of drugs is framed 
And to frame it well, policymakers need to speak to people who use drugs, um, just like you're doing here, that's amazing, and understand why and how people use drugs, what their needs and worries are. Because if policymakers get this stage right, I think everything will fall into place if the right intentions are there. So I think, like, giving specific policy prescri uh, prescriptions is like giving policymakers the fish instead of teaching them how to, uh, how to fish. <laughs> That's great. That's a good analogy there. Uh, I don't think I have uh, anything to add. I, the, like, Drugs and Me's focus is quite um, low level in terms of we work with people who use drugs directly. And we need politicians to listen as well. And we need them to be invested in, in, in this issue and, um, and open to kind of changing things as well. How optimistic are you that drugs policy in the UK will change for the better? I am optimistic that it will change for the better, but I'm pessimistic about how quickly it will change. The consequences of bad drug policy damage the society and individuals in so many different and tragic ways. So I think eventually um, these consequences can't be ignored. That's why it's going to change. But um, I'm just pessimistic about how much more damage these policies will cause until they finally change. Um, mm. Let's see. Yeah. And Ivan, what about you? I think they, they will change, but I'll disagree with Arta that they, I think they won't change. So in, in, in policy reform, you, at least in the, in the drug world, I've seen people that are, they're there from, from the human rights perspective. Like these policies are against human rights and we should change them because it will make our health and et cetera better. And you have the people that are coming from the economical um, like point of view. It's like these cannabis psychedelic markets are huge and there's going to be like, there's going to be so much profit and money. I think most, the, the like bigger push is not from the human right perspective, it's from the economical uh, perspective, which is fine. Like I, I think, I think there should be change and, and we should embrace both pers perspectives, but I'm, I, I'm pessimistic that because the main driver is going to be the economical incentive. Mm. There's going to be, uh, we're going to miss loads of opportunities to get it right in the sense of building a sustainable market that in the long term not only protects people that are working and want to make money and, and leave out that, but also protect uh, our like mental health, well-being in the long term. So mm -hmm. uh, there's going to be a lot of tension there. And, and I'm, I'm a bit pessim pessimistic with the tension, but I'm optimistic that the drivers are, are like growing and growing and it's going to be changed. Thank you so much for your contributions today. And yes, I uh, hope you enjoy listeners. Thanks for having us, Rebecca. Thank you, Rebecca. We'd like to offer special thanks to Nicole Borgers, who assisted the project with a literature review that helped inform this episode. Thanks, Nicole. We have reached the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. We'd like to credit and thank Anna Duffy at A Duffy Design for our logo and branding. This podcast was produced by Neil Scott. Ha 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 ha!